Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, March 27th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Swytran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So it's been a week and a half since we've last done this. Uh, hopefully this won't go long. Uh, let's just dive into it and start talking. Uh, what have we been doing? Uh, this past weekend I went to Disneyland. It's the first time I've been there in a couple months, actually. I haven't been going lately. And uh, the uh, I tried to do some... You know, I'm a big fan of a lot of theme park video bloggers on YouTube. I follow a bunch of people like the Tim Tracker, who we've mentioned on this podcast, World of Micah, Adam the Woo. Uh, those are some good people that I highly recommend. So I've been thinking a lot lately, like, you know, of chronicling my journeys to Disneyland. And I, I kind of did a test of that, tried to do some video blogging through my Instagram stories um when i was there this weekend and guys it's hard video blogging is not easy um i'm I'm not sure i am cut out for it uh it, it is it is really hard to capture interesting things while they're happening and not uh be on your phone during the non-interesting times do you know what i mean like i feel it's it's just and it's also you gotta like kind of put yourself out there as a character on the story that is not usually a person i am but uh Ben, I know you have uh, some experience doing this with your vacations, but you're not really doing video <laughs> blogging. It's more of like, a, I don't know, a tonal piece of the yeah. what your events. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's why I, I or part of the reason why I do the videos, the, you know, why, why my wife and I do them the way that we do them is so we don't have to address the camera or a camera or be like narrating what's going on. It's just easier to sort of uh, present and let the footage speak for itself and just like throw a music track underneath it. But um, I mean, yeah, it's it's a whole different kind of art, I guess, to to vlogging. Yeah. And, and watching it every day like I do, the people like the Tim Tracker and his wife, Jen, 
they make it look so easy. Like it looks like they're just like taking out the camera and videotaping along with their day, but it's it's not easy. Um, but I was thinking, you know, the opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is coming up uh, in what a month and a half or so, and I have a hotel room which should give me access to Galaxy's Edge on opening day. If not, if I don't get invited to a press day before then, which does I have not gotten any word on that, so probably not. I don't know. Disneyland hates us for some reason. Uh, <laughs> but I was thinking, like, how do I cover this? Because it's supposed to be a timed entry to this land. Uh, and I'm, like, worried that I'm going to be going – my first experience in Batu is going to be me, like, taking notes to, like, you know, taking photos, trying to, like, put together a piece for the site. And I was thinking maybe it would be cooler for me to bring my iPhone and do it as a video blog of, like, you know, just, like, you experiencing my experiences and I would cut that down later. But is that a disaster waiting to happen, Ben? (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, how many people do you think – are going to be there of the I don't know how many people at the park is going to be able to hold on that day. Oh, I don't but know. But like the the percentage of people who are going to be there who are going to be vlogging is got to be astronomically high because it's the opening day. So every in the background of every single one of your shots, it's going to be 15 <laughs> people talking to their own cameras. So uh, I mean that could be. But I want to give a- our readers and our listeners a way to experience this from home in some way, and like I feel like. Doing in text and photos might be... Yeah, no, I mean, I I think you're right. I think it it would certainly be an interesting way for people to experience the insanity of what it's going to be like there on opening day. And you can't really capture that in any other way other than video. I'm just saying for you on the ground, it's going to you're going to be presented with some serious (laughs) obstacles. But if you're willing to try to overcome those, then I think the experience would probably probably be worth it for people who are interested. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to we're going to try to get there. I have a month and a half to get there. Uh, Jacob, what have you been doing this week? Well, as uh, people listen to the podcast know, I've been dieting over the past three months, and I've decided to double down on my efforts not to die before I'm 50. Uh, so that means I bought some additional uh, exercise equipment, installed a miniature gym in my garage, and I started taking multivitamins and other specific vitamins and turmeric pills and fish oil. Uh, and fiber and other things and exercising every other day, both weightlifting and cardio. And I, I this may be news to people like us who sit around our butts and write and watch movies all day. But when you do this, you actually feel really good physically and you wake up each morning not in pain and you like look forward to your days and have like a bright, clear head. I mean, who knew? Who knew that all this stuff was good for you, Peter? <laughs> Who knew? Uh, the only thing I'm going to say, Jacob, is don't get discouraged if it appears like you're not losing the weight after you've started working out. For a while there, you're going to be gaining some muscle. And it's uh, maybe those shirts are not going to look like they're becoming, you know, uh, baggier. As, as, oh, for sure, yeah. yeah so, uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm definitely why I'm not weighing myself for this diet. I'm, I'm just going by physical resemblance, uh, my first physical comparison only, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. Like maybe those few weeks where uh, I, I look bulkier, but hopefully in a good way. You know, who knows? Maybe this time next year, Peter, I'll, I'll be like all hulked out, and I'll be like the, <laughs> the slash film writer who can like break bricks with his with his fists. Who knows? I I want to see that for sure. Okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. 
Chris, what have you been reading this week? Uh, when I was in Austin for Pet Cemetery, Jacob was nice enough to gift me the the first volume of uh, Killer Be Killed, the the comic by Ed Brubaker. Um, and it's great. I read it uh, in one day because, you know, it's not too long. And now uh, I have to go out and buy all the other. I think there's like three more volumes. I have to get them all now because I'm I'm pretty hooked. It, it's it's uh, it's a good read. It's very angsty and pulpy. And uh, I enjoyed it quite a, quite a bit. I also love this comic. It's very uh, Fight Club esque, I would probably say. Um, so if you, you like things like Fight Club or even like Chuck Palahniuk's kind of stuff, like uh, not that he's involved in this, but I feel like it's kind of in that same vein um, or in that same uh, you know corner of the room. Ben, what have you been reading this week? I got an early look at a new book called The Art and Making of the Handmaid's Tale, which is written by Andrea Robinson. And as the title suggests, this book is all about, it's sort of defined as the uh, the official companion to the Hulu uh, MGM TV series, The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, I've read that book. I really enjoy that show. So I was interested to see what this book could tell me that I didn't already know. And there's a bunch of interviews in here with, you know, Margaret Atwood, who wrote the original novel that the show is based on, and all of the people in involved with the series um it's it's really really good i'm not completely done with it yet but i think you know for anybody who's a fan of the show this book is worth checking out there's a ton of like concept art and little you know pieces of uh like photos of like swatches of colors that they were using there's a lot of discussion about um how the uh, different colors were chosen for the show and the show has such a distinct color palette there's interviews with uh, Reed Morano who directed the first 3 episodes of the show and sort of established the visual look of the entire series um but there's also some stuff in there that I didn't know like Morano who's a, a cinematographer in her own right directed those first 3 episodes but she used the cinematographer of The Fall uh, the the Tarsum Singh movie from 2006, which I did not realize. So that was a kind of a cool little piece of trivia. Um, and then there's a bunch of like little stuff that I, I you know, even uh, a very serious viewer of the show, somebody who pays a lot of attention to all the little details of the show might not recognize. Like they're the handmaids in the show have these ear tags where they're tagged by the, the overlords in Gilead. And each of these tags has a number on it. And uh, Offred's tag, June, the character played by Elizabeth Moss, her number is 1985, which is the year that the book came out. And I've never noticed that before. So it's, you know, there's a, there are a lot of these little sort of uh, almost Easter egg kind of details uh, sprinkled throughout this book. And it's called The Art and Making of the Handmaid's Tale. And it comes out on May 14th. So if you're a fan of the show, maybe check that out. Yeah. On Monday, we talked a bit about the Apple Keynote and their announcement for Apple TV+. Plus. One of the other things they announced on that Keynote was that they uh, were adding an Apple News Plus to their news app. And this is basically they bought Texture, which was this app that let you read. Uh, it's basically Netflix for magazines. And they're offering a 30-day free trial to anybody. So I decided, why not? I'm going to test this out. Um, so I signed up for the 30-day free trial, which obviously after 30 days ends up charging me $9.99 a month. But it gives you access to almost 300 different publications, uh, things like uh, GQ, Time Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, Wired, Vanity Fair, New Yorker, uh, Esquire, 
men's health, variety. Like those are amongst the the things in my magazine collection that I'm taking a look at. And uh, I will say that I am liking and hating this app so far. Uh, one cool thing is a lot of these magazines have um, re-edited the the way that the page looks for the iPhone. So it's very easy to read on the go, uh, which I like before it was very like magazine-like. Um, but on the other hand, Apple has, it's not the best UI in the world. And it's like to, to add a magazine to your magazine rack, or I guess it's called my magazines. It should be called magazine rack. Um, it takes you three different clicks and you, you basically have to know that something's there. It's like a very hard to get to thing. It should be like a one click thing. Um, I don't think it's ready for prime time. And also, the uh the the um recommendations like the thing about this that i thought was kind of cool is they have recommendations for articles which is recommending to me like some articles uh from time magazine and money and cosmo i guess uh your money horoscope of the month for month of april i can read that that's what it's recommending to me i don't know why but uh, one of the things I'm kind of disappointed is there there are ways in this app for me to follow things I like. So I'm following Star Wars. I'm following Marvel. I'm following the keto diet. Yeah, I'm following things like that. But it is not recommending to me articles on Star Wars from all these publications. Like I, I feel like I want to see the latest Star Wars article for, you know, that whenever it's published in these publications, I feel like uh, they have a ways to go with the recommendation engine here. But uh, I would recommend check it out. It's worth checking out. I would not use this as a newsreader. I'd use it just for the magazines. The newsreader kind of stinks. Um, but i um, interested to see if any of you guys end up trying this. Uh, but, Brad, you've been reading some comic books? Uh, I read a single comic book. <laughs> um, it is So it's something that I, I bought a while back because I accidentally found out about it. Um, every now and then I'll go search on eBay for like vintage uh, classic Saturday Night Live type memorabilia, stuff that you can't really easily find anymore um, and that isn't readily available in like collectible shops or anything like that. And while I was searching, <clears throat> I found out that there was once a comic book in 1974, I think it was, October 74, where one of the Marvel team-up issues had Spider-Man working with the uh, Not Ready for time, Primetime Players, which was the original name for the cast of Saturday Night Live. And I I didn't even realize that this was a thing that existed. So I just <laughs> had to buy it just to see what it was like. And so, like, it's a classic comic, obviously. So it's, it, it's old school, um, and it's <laughs> very odd, but it features all of the... Uh, cast members from the original Saturday Night Live cast, uh, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Jane Curtin, Garrett Morris, Bill Murray, Lorraine Newman, uh, Gilda Radner. And the host of the episode is Stan Lee. And the premise <laughs> is that uh, Peter Parker and Mary Jane got tickets to see the the live show of Saturday Night Live. So they're going to the show and they they get there and... You see the background details of the live show happening with the cast and stuff. And John Belushi gets this weird ring sent to him that he thinks is some kind of like fan mail gift or something. But it's something that the Silver Samurai is after. And the Silver Samurai busts into 
SNL and is trying to get this ring and Spider-Man has to try and stop him. And like the cast of SNL helps by like creating these distractions and like they're like <laughs> Lorraine Newman and Garrett Morris are dressed up as Ms. Marvel and Thor at one point to try and trick Silver Samurai into thinking that more superheroes are there. And it's just, it's such a weird novelty thing. And it was so fun, fun to read through. And there's even like little fun, random Easter egg stuff. Like when in the, the big splash page panel uh, in the, the issue, when Stan Lee is introducing that he's the host of Saturday Night Live and Peter Parker and Mary Jane are just getting to the show in their balcony seats. There's two characters situated behind them who call each other Statler and Waldorf, huh. so which is a reference to the the critic characters, the old men from the Muppets, which I thought was just random and funny. Um, but yeah, this it was just a just a fun thing to read. I bought this a while back, and then I I hadn't opened it up to read it, and I recently got it back out because I've been getting some stuff organized that has been disorganized in my new place. So I actually just opened up and read through, it, and it was it was just just a fun silly read. I think Marvel still does these kind of like ridiculous uh, side things. I know Penn and Teller were recently in a run of Dare or of uh, Deadpool. Like it was the Deadpool teaming up with Penn and Teller. It's weird. Uh, Jacob, do you have any experience with these like strange spinoff kind of episodes? Uh, yeah, I mean, some, the most famous ones are from the sixties, seventies, and eighties, of course. But I know recently there was this incredibly strange. Um, baffling even uh set of comics where each superhero was teamed up with a different looney tunes character for like a bunch of these individual one-off um issues i, I can't remember the rest who all the pairings were but remember it was like elmer fudd and batman and it w- was one of the pairings i didn't read them but they, they, they still happen they still exist and they're and they're i don't know who reads them but but they, they must sell to these people who want the novelty factor because they're out there I've actually stumbled across like some details about those comics in doing superhero bits, and apparently they're really good for like they're I guess they do some cool th- interesting things and and how they bring the Looney Tunes characters into like the DC uh, comics universe and like they 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 sound really weird but they there's a lot there's some cool ideas I guess I don't know people seem to really like them. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move on to what we've been watching. I will start things off. Uh, last week, Chris was talk- talking about this documentary on HBO, Alex Gibney's The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. Um, and this is about uh, a woman in Silicon Valley named Elizabeth Holmes, who led a Silicon Valley startup that raised nearly $1 billion on the concept that uh, was found out not to be feasible. And it turned out in the end, uh, she was lying and is now uh potentially going to jail for fraud right and um you know that that that's the real life headlines i didn't really know anything about this until chris brought this up but apparently this has been a huge thing there's a book there's a podcast um you know this has been mainstream news i'm not usually a fan of alex gibney's documentaries i know like he's a beloved uh, person in the documentary world. I feel like his Scientology documentary just scratches the surface. Usually his stuff is more talking heads than showing anything, and I feel like that that's the worst a documentary can be. I, I want to use the medium of film in a cinematic way, and I want to see I don't want to be told about things happening. I want to see things happening. Uh, this documentary, however, he was 
he got access to a lot of inside footage from uh, all hands-on meetings inside the company, interviews uh, with um, Elizabeth from, from throughout the years. Although he doesn't interview her for this documentary directly, it, it is a fascinating story. I think in the end, this documentary is kind of surface level and doesn't really go too deep into it. I, I wish it was... I don't know, from from Chris's setup of this, I was expecting this to be such a malicious, uh, to be kind of like what Firefest was and the guy behind uh, that. I and, think you misunderstood me, Peter, because I actually talked about the book, not the documentary. That's oh, were you I talking saying. about the book? Yes, and the book, I do agree. I did watch this documentary, though, and I do agree. It's very surface level, even though I enjoyed it, but the book is so okay. much deeper, and I'm I'm currently reading the book now. I'm sorry about the confusion there. Then no, um, that's fine. Uh, well, the uh, but I, I do feel like I, I was going into it expecting her to be like this gigantic liar, and it feels to me like I mean she is a liar. I'm not I'm not going to defend her in any case. She she went you know she squandered a billion dollars based on lies, but I, I don't feel I feel like it's it's this gray area where she believed that this was possible. And there's many inventors out there. They, they even say in this documentary that like Edison, who was her, like the, one of the people that she looked up to, you know, would often promise these huge things that were not believed to be achievable and, and get to the goal before the deadline. Um, that is status quo for Silicon Valley, but it, it, it is obvious in the later part of this documentary that she uh, was uh, acting off, of fear and uh you know making uh you know saying things that were not accurate in order to keep things going and you know that's dishonest and that that that, that is definitely wrong it, it is a fascinating story to me but I, I don't think it's um i'm wondering what you think chris because i don't feel like it's her intentions were initially malicious. I feel like she actually thought that they were going to get there, even though people were telling her it wasn't possible. Yeah. Um, if I had just seen this documentary without reading the book, like I started the book before I, I watched the documentary, I, I would probably agree with you, but the, I, I would really recommend if you have the time, Peter, to, to get the book or even listen to the podcast because the podcast is based on the book, but the book goes into so much more detail about how, like manipulative and just full of shit she is. And I, I don't know if she knew she's full of shit or she's like delusional. If it's like that, that Trumpian thing where you think you're great at everything, even though you're clearly not like, it might just be that, that she's just narcissistic and she really thought she could pull all this stuff off, even though she really couldn't. But the book goes a lot more into detail about how, uh, you know, how much terrible stuff this company was doing and just constantly like basically anytime someone caught onto them in the company and was like uh, i don't know about this she would just fire them so that sort of makes okay. me think she knew what she was doing because the minute anyone was like uh this isn't gonna work she'd be like guess what you're fired so that that to me makes me think she at least on some level didn't want anyone to like call her out on her bullshit since you weren't talking about the documentary what, what did you think of the documentary itself uh it, it's fine i i do agree like alex gibney he is he's he knows how to make very entertaining documentaries but he does 
only scratched the surface. Uh, the same thing with the, the Scientology thing. Like I, I had read the Going Clear book first before I saw the documentary, and he leaves so much stuff out. Like I don't know if that's just the nature of like he wants to make make it not like a you know a ten hour documentary, but there's there's a lot of stuff he doesn't cover and i don't know why he chooses to do that way um at the same time there are a few alex gibby docs i really like but this probably isn't his best but if you're you're curious to learn like the bare bones of this story i would recommend watching it but then i would really recommend picking up the book which is called uh bad blood which is really good i i really don't have time to read a book these days so i'm probably i still haven't read um Blake Harris's book, which has been sitting on my table, but I might try to listen to the podcast. I I am I have a lot of time, you know, on the go, so I'm gonna try to check that out. Um, okay, another thing I we binge watched in the, over the series or, or over one day, we binge watched a uh, the the OA part two. Has anybody else here seen any of the OA? I'm assuming not. And once I heard the ending of season one, I swore I would never watch it, but I'm ready to be convinced, Peter. My wife and I watched, I think, the first two episodes of the first season, and we're like, this is just not for us. So we we stopped, uh, even before it got to the insanity of what apparently happens at the end of season one. Well, I, I just love everything that uh, Britt Marling and her co-conspirator, Zal Batmangui, uh, you know, he was the guy that did uh, the sound of your voice or sound of my voice, which was a huge hit at Sundance and South by Southwest Film Festival. He wrote The East, which I liked at Sundance. And the OA is totally in that same style. It is taking these huge sci fi concepts, but um, grounding it in a character driven reality, making you ask or asking weird questions of you of of this world of these characters are are they telling the truth are there are they being misled you know what what is real this i feel like even more so than westworld this is uh a show that kind of ca- uh recaptures what i felt with lost and um i i, I do think it is too weird for its own good I do feel like most people that liked Lost would not like this show, and I, I totally understand why, uh, Ben, you wouldn't... Well, I don't understand why you'd give up after two episodes. I feel like the first couple episodes were really good in that first season, but uh, it does get to some really strange places, which, uh, you know, you heard what happened at the end of the first season, Jacob. Um, it, it It is... I don't know. You have... It, it wears... It's hard on its sleeve. It, it tries to put these ideas out there, and sometimes they look ridiculous. But it's uh, this. The show is so ambitious. Uh, every episode of the season has batshit crazy uh, things that happen that potentially jump the shark. Like so crazy that, like you know, every episode, uh, Kitra was looking at me and was like, "Did this series jump the shark?" And then, like twenty minutes later, she was reinvested in it. Um, I wish i could uh say some things about this episode but i feel or about the the season but i feel like it is spoilers because it happens in the later half of the season but i i mean jacob should i i don't know i i edited the spoiler review that we ran slash.com written by uh, josh meyer yeah and so i i can even though i haven't seen the episodes i can attest that they are indeed uh something special i'll put it that way um 
I will say there's we, a, some Lovecraftian influences here that were unexpected. There, uh, there's an octopus. I won't say much more. There, uh, the ending of this series of this season might be the craziest, most ridiculous ending to any season finale I've ever seen on television. And by that, I don't mean it's good. I'm not even sure if it's good. I'm not even sure it's bad, but it sure is crazy. And uh, I want to see what the third season is going to look like. This this the show is. I'm not sure. I love this show, but I really enjoy it, and I really love how weird and ambitious it is. And I I wish more people would would go on this roller coaster ride because it it's it's worth going on in my mind. Even though I I don't think it. Uh, it, it it nails the landing on every single thing. You know, it, it definitely doesn't. I feel like if you, if you have problems with a movie like Jordan Peele's Us, you'll have tons of problems with this show. <laughs> but um, speaking of Us, I did rewatch Us. I talked about that yesterday on the podcast. But I know, uh, Jacob, you also rewatched Us. Yeah, I watched it with my wife last night. She hadn't seen it yet. And that movie is even better on a second viewing you start to pick up so much and i love how it made me think that everything everybody has said about it on these podcasts is both strengthened and weakened at the same time like i i feel even more insecure in my position while feeling more secure in it at the same time and i just love how a movie can is committed enough in its view that we all get an idea what it's about but just loose enough that we can all circle that idea in our own way and apply our own perspective and the little details and the little setups and payoffs both visually and character and story wise that you don't catch till the second time are just like are just sublime it, it's it's a movie that rewards second viewing so much yeah um ht you're the only one on this podcast that has not talked about us on this yeah. podcast uh, without going into spoilers, because I think we'll have enough time at some point. We got a lot of emails to to theorize more and have you on and talk about that kind of stuff. W- what did you think of the film? I really enjoyed Us. It's such a haunting and unsettling and truly audacious movie that kind of preys on our primal fear of the other. And I like with like uh, agreeing with what Jacob said about how it rewards you for kind of going deeper than its surface level. Um, and I like that, too, that you can kind of enjoy it as a straight-up horror film while, uh, you know, going deeper and going into its various details. It's just a movie that's, like, really interesting to me because I didn't expect it to be quite as, I don't know, I guess the word is meticulous in terms of just, like, the 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 various elements and the sort of plot twist that you have it feels like those the 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 story structure is more something that is along the lines of like a sci-fi whereas the overall message is something that is a little bit grander and a little bit more uh, amorphous than that and um i i like that a lot and um i just really enjoy when movies like especially mainstream studio movies like us uh swing for the fences like that and um that us was something that really kept me thinking for a long time and even though after i saw it i didn't have an immediate read right away i wanted to immediately know 
what other people thought of it and what the reads were. And I think that like my enjoyment of the film has only been enhanced by seeing what other people saw of it um, after the fact. And uh, it's something that hasn't really like left my mind either. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, my appreciation of the movie has definitely grown since my first viewing. Um, you know, actually on my way to see us for the second time, I saw a billboard for this new show called Mental Samurai. This is a new Fox game show hosted by Rob Lowe. And uh, I don't watch many game shows, but when there's a new one, I like to check it out. So I decided to watch the pilot episode of this. And basically, people are strapped into this capsule that is on the end of like one of those robotic arms that you see making cars in factories. Um, and basically given five minutes to answer questions until they get it wrong, uh, get a question wrong. And they they are rotating 360 degrees on this gimbal while they're answering questions. There's four different screens on either side of the, uh, you know, that uh, the arena that this takes place in. And types of questions range from puzzles to sequences to memory to knowledge. And if you complete all the questions in the time limit, you win $10,000 and go on to the circle of samurai for a chance at a hundred thousand dollars, um, where there's four questions worth $25,000 each. Anyways. Um, I wanted to check this out just to see what it is. I have a few notes from this. I, I wouldn't recommend this show to anybody. It seems weird to me how the television game show genre seems to be stuck since like, you know, who wants to be a millionaire kind of changed the aesthetic and the feel of those shows. And it seems to be stuck in that time, which I guess is like, what, 15, 20 years ago now at this point? Um, Rob Lowe doesn't make a good toast. He's a bit generic. And it's kind of strange. The question's like, it's weird that we went from a time where Jeopardy had these, like, I feel like challenging questions for, you know, smart people to now in on this show, people are like, remembering the order of six different images and putting it back together. And like, I feel like 98% of the questions on the show were easy for me to answer. Uh, not to say I'm stupid anyway, but, but uh, it seems like, like game shows are coming down to the level of the audience rather than challenging the audience these days. J Jacob, I'm wondering if you have any theory on this. Uh, yeah, I think people, all these uh, studios or networks think people want to see people like them succeed instead of people who are smarter than them. I think Jeopardy is the only show that like prides itself on putting genuinely intelligent people uh, on TV. I know the audition process for what to be a millionaire uh, from what I understand is very much leans toward, is this person a relatable character for us to follow and enjoy to watch every man win a million dollars as opposed to will this person actually win a million dollars through knowledge. So I definitely think you're right on to something yeah. here. Anyways, I wouldn't recommend it. Don't watch it. Uh, that is called uh, Mental Samurai, and it's on Fox. Uh, Chris, what have you been watching or rewatching? Uh, I rewatched Aquaman, even though I just watched it because I. Yeah. I really this is a movie that you refused to go to the theater to see. You didn't think you were going to like it, even though you liked James Wan, and now you've rewatched it. You've seen it twice at home. That's right, because I'm willing to admit my mistakes, unlike some <laughs> people. And uh, yeah, I, I really think this is going to become my like one of my like comfort food movies because it's it's so silly, but it's I just love how like 
big it's trying to be. It's trying to be this huge epic. And, you know, I said this before, but like this feels like a million times more epic than anything in Infinity War, which is kind of pathetic because that movie is like the culmination of an entire, uh, you know, like 10 years of movies, whereas this is just, you know, really the uh, the first in a series but the, you know this movie's trying so much harder and it just looks so much better and it's just a fun enjoyable film and i you know i rarely rewatch movies so quickly but you know i i just felt like rewatching this and i did not regret it I still think you're wrong about Infinity War. Um, no, but I'm not. You are. You I are. like that you always use this as a chance to just shit on Infinity War. <laughs> it stinks. Like he has, it he has a vendetta against Infinity War. I will say this, Chris. Um, I had only seen Infinity War once in theaters, and then I saw it again when they did that Russo's Q&A. And I, I appreciate it. And not that I didn't like the movie the first time. But I don't think I liked it uh, as much as everybody else the first time. And then when I saw it the second time on the big screen, I enjoyed a lot of things I thought I didn't like about the movie, like the Battle of Wakanda at the end of the film. I, I remember not liking that the first time around. And I I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe you should go back and revisit this, Chris. Maybe I should. But I, I will say this. Um, uh, there's this guy. His name is Patrick Willems. He has this great YouTube channel. And he's currently oh, yeah. in the middle of this three-part uh limitations of the mcu and it's not like mcu bashing it's you know it's him pointing out why the mcu movies are are good but not great and i would highly recommend everyone check it out because it's a really smart series and it almost mimics like almost all of my opinions of the mcu although i'm probably a little more negative on it than he is but please go watch this it's on youtube it's it's great yeah and and while while we're plugging mcu related stuff i want to point out that um Slash Films uh, contributor Sidhant Adlaka is doing an update on a series of articles he wrote last year for Slash Film, where he's also taking a very critical eye to the MCU film by film. A link in the show notes, but he's more positive than uh, Patrick's uh, uh, YouTube series. But if you're interested in like serious criticism of the MCU and like really diving into the politics of it, the flaws, the strengths, what makes them work, what makes them weak, uh, there's some really good stuff out there, like beyond you know the regular press, and we'll link to those. YouTube videos and those articles in the show notes because they're all it's all really worth checking out if you want to have like a serious talk about this. Yeah, Sid's stuff is fantastic, and I've watched. I, I love Patrick's videos, and I I do want to reiterate that, you know, he's a guy that stands in front of a bookcase full of Marvel trade paperbacks. Like he's not a person that hates Marvel or hates the Marvel movies. Um, and his this series has been very fascinating because it has. Um, kind of outlined some of the things, the problems I have with the MCU. Like, uh, and these are things that are, you know, part of the comics, like the whole Stanley, the illusion of change. Uh, you know, making it seem like big, big events are always happening every year in the, the lives of these superheroes, but then things just, you know, go back to the status quo the next year. So, um, you know, there's no, uh, yeah, there's, there's smart things that are pointed out in the, the video essay for sure. And he, he absolutely makes valid points, but I think that some of the, the restraints simply apply to the, the medium of film rather and, and the, as opposed to the medium of comic books. And I think that a lot, some of those similar problems you could easily equate to any other comic book movie, especially when it comes to the films of the DC extended universe. Oh, w- 100%. And Not Aquaman, uh, though. Oh no, definitely Aquaman. Because no, I... Aquaman, it's flawless. Please, let's. let's... <laughs> 
Chris, uh, next time I see you, I'm going to make you listen to the entirety of that cover of Africa by Pitbull. I've I'm heard like, it. I don't mind it. It's fine. It's, it's silly. silly. It's garbage. It's <laughs> I don't. I don't even like the original song, so I'm not gonna be like, "How? Oh no, that class." I, like, I don't care. Whatever. Go yeah, ahead. Every superhero movie needs needs an awesome slow mo beat shot that looks like it's a music video in Miami. Listen, honestly, I would be happy if that happened. Yeah, that oh, would goodness. make Infinity War so much better if there was a slow mo scene scored to Pitbull. Four stars. I'm dusting off the no button. <laughs> <laughs> no. N-O. no. Okay. No button unretired. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. Uh Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I finished uh Bodyguard, the BBC and Netflix series starring Game of Thrones uh Richard Madden. And it remains very intense and well made and well acted until the end. And the final feature length episode is mostly really intense until a mind-bogglingly stupid infuriating twist that undercuts so much of what the show is trying to say in a way that made me genuinely angry and if you've seen the show you may know what I'm referring to but for a, a show that tries to have such an open mind and paint so, so many complicated matters in shades of gray it lands on a point that is incredibly frustrating and paints something in black and white that was so comfortable and in, in how uncomfortable it was pr- prior to that. So Bodyguard is actually a very good show. I still recommend it. Only six episodes long. But I think that the I, one of the very final choices in the last 20 minutes of the last episode left me very deflated with what the show was trying to say overall. Uh, but otherwise, I've been watching HBO's Succession. Has anybody else watched this show before I go on? I've watched a couple episodes. I, for, for whatever reason, we didn't uh, continue watching it. I, I am. I put this on on a whim. It's it's a HBO series directed. For, the pilot's directed by Adam McKay of The Big Short and Vice. You know, also Anchorman and comedy classics. And Succession, in a nutshell, is Game of Thrones meets Arrested Development, following a, a Rupert Murdoch esque figure by Brian Cox, who runs a massive uh, empire of news and movie studios and theme parks and magazines and the show starts with him losing his mind having a stroke and losing control of his faculties and his children essentially struggling to control the legacy of the company and who gets to run things and the various backstabbings and intrigue that follows and it's very funny it's very dark it's run by jesse armstrong who's a writer on movie in the loop he worked on veep yeah and the show is very funny but it's not straightforward comedies these are hour-long episodes and i found myself really caring about these characters they're all dirtbags they're all such shitheads they're all uh people who if this was revolutionary france they'd, they'd all be in the guillotine immediately they they're all terrible but the show does a really good job of balancing their like dunderheaded evil decisions while while you know creating them in three dimensions so you care about their bad choices and and understand how they came to be the way they are and I'm super into it. I'm super into these bad characters. I'm super into their evil plots. I'm super into courtroom scene, not a courtroom, sorry, boardroom scenes that are so intense with, with the way people are fired and humiliated that it plays like mutilations and massacres in Game of Thrones. I'm all on board on Succession. It is a blast. Very cool. And uh, Brad, what have you been watching? I actually haven't been watching uh, too much. I've 
I guess been relatively busy or maybe maybe I've just been terrible about watching things. Um, so I uh, I went to see Us last week. Um, that's something I've talked about. I talked about you know quite extensively on our spoiler discussion episode of the podcast. Um, so I won't really dig too much into it other than just to reiterate how much that I like it and how it's it's such an interesting step up for Jordan Peele. Not that it's necessarily better than Get Out, but I feel like it has so much more to say. And while the complexity can can make it a little bit messy at times, I think that it's the ambition is what really matters. And so much of what he's trying to do here, it, like it, it's so, sometimes it feels like maybe it sacrifices some of the more logical side of creating the, this universe that he does in favor of telling a, a powerful, you know, allegory or delivering a powerful metaphor. But I actually think in this case that that doesn't detract from the story to me. I think if anything, I think it's what makes it that much more interesting and that pe- a lot of people tend to focus on those little logical details and they take them out of the story. And I feel like focusing on that is is so much of this kind of, I don't know, culture we have where we need answers to everything. And I don't think that I want all of those answers. I just want to kind of get lost in this world and think about, you know, the the message and, you know, story that Jordan Peele is trying to tell. Um. I also rewatched Captain Marvel over the weekend, which I actually enjoyed um, more a second time than I did the first time. Not to say that I didn't enjoy it the first time because I thought it was uh, fantastic, but I think that when you, I think the, I feel like the first time when you go into Captain Marvel, there there was a lot of expectation and maybe hope that there would be more connective tissue or more of a a little bit of a setup, I guess, for what's to come in Avengers Endgame and how important Captain Marvel will be in that movie. And even though we know the the, the credit sequence delivers that, I think that this movie really stands very well on its own. And I think that it's probably one of the superior origin stories, simply because after all this time, we've seen so many origin stories that we don't have to know every little thing about Carol Danvers' past to understand what kind of character she is and you know, what it takes for her to become this this hero. We, we get these flashes and non-chronological pieces of her memory as we go through. And so we find out exactly, you know, the, the impetus for her getting these superpowers, but not necessarily all of the character traits that lead to her being who she is. But you still get this great idea of her character and her personality. And... I I, feel, I just feel like it's it's very well done in that way, and then just just you know in addition to just how it plays with your expectations of, as far as the the scrolls are concerned in this cosmic war and Captain Marvel's place place in all of it, and uh, her story specifically how she you know overcomes these limitations that are forced upon her. It's just it's a very relevant movie. It's it's very good, and if you haven't seen it a second time, I, w- I recommend doing that because I think it works even better on a, on a second viewing. And w- you've also been watching some TV? Uh, yeah, so I just I, I keep working through uh, Queer Eye. I just finished the second season, and it continues to be, like, one of my favorite new uh, things that I've been watching. It's just so delightful and fun. I will say I don't think that I liked the second season nearly as much as the first season. Not to say that it's, um, you know, bad or anything like that, or that, um, but there's a couple episodes this season where I just really didn't care too much about the people they were making over and the makeover in question it just didn't make much sense to me um so like it's i, I don't know there, there were just a couple episodes i just didn't really latch onto this season and i just felt like it wasn't nearly as heartfelt or um meaningful as as the first season was but the the fab five are they're all so great and 
I just, uh, you know, it's it's one of those shows too where you like you you pick up tips and you get interesting ideas for stuff to do uh, in your own house and with your own wardrobe and and that kind of thing. So it's yeah, it's just a very enjoyable show. Ben, what have you been watching this week? Uh, I checked out a movie called 42nd Street for the first time. It's the 1933 musical directed by Lloyd Bacon. This is actually the first of two movies that I watched that are sort of uh, behind the scenes of a show of some kind. So this one, I think I would recommend less than the next one. But that being said, 42nd Street is still, it's decent, but um, it's about this guy who is a a director of a big, uh, like a traveling musical show. And he... His back is up against the wall because he he went broke due to the 1929 stock market crash. So he the pressure is on for him to have a big hit. And it's basically the whole movie is just about him launching this show and and casting this, you know, naive sort of up and coming newcomer and uh, some of the more experienced cast members sort of battling it out and some relationship stuff that goes on between them. Um, Ginger Rogers is in this movie in a supporting role, and I really enjoyed her performance in it. Uh, Ruby Keeler is in it as well. Uh, It's her first movie. It's her big, like, starring role uh, debut, and she was really good. Uh, Warner Baxter, somebody I'd never heard of before, plays the director of the show, and he was very good as well. the movie is uh, choreographed by Busley, Busby Berkeley, so that's probably like the most notable thing about it. It's, it's I think his like I don't know eighth or tenth movie that he ever choreographed. But all you know, it's it. This movie came out in 1933. He started choreographing movies in 1930, so uh, it's still relatively early in his career. But you know, it's got that sort of. Uh, eagle-eyed you know looking down at a bunch of dancers spinning in kaleidoscopic formations and stuff that you sort of expect from uh the busley busby berkeley uh styled all of that is, is very much on display there so that's 42nd street and the other one the sort of behind the scenes uh, of a show type of movie is called to be or not to be and this came out in 1942 it starred uh, carol lombard and jack benny and it's about uh, a group of actors in poland who are basically trying to um infiltrate the nazis uh and and try to trying to like overthrow or or, uh subvert their efforts to uh destroy the country it's very uh, sort of slapsticky and and funny like the it's probably the the I'm trying to think. I, I think it might be the funniest comedy that I've seen from this period. Uh, this, like I said, this movie came out in 1942, so it's relatively early. But um, yeah, Carol Lombard and Jack Benny were both very, very good in it. I think all of the movies from this era, and this also applies to Little Women, which I guess I'll talk about next, um, and actually The Asphalt Jungle, uh, the, all of the movies from this period just sort of end. Like the, I feel like all these <laughs> movies, they, they had a real trouble. The scripts are often terrific like the dialogue is always really good and i'm always like man the stories here are just so much better than like the typical stuff that we see in theaters today but almost all of these movies from it see i mean this is a sweeping generalization that i'm sure there's a ton of of (laughs) you know uh uh, exceptions to but it seems like for this like 30 year period in movie history movies would just like the, the big climax would happen and then the movie would just end and in modern films i feel like the big climax happens and then there's like a five or ten minute sort of a come down after that and then the movie ends and that just you know these movies used to just basically like slice off all of that and just bring it straight to a, a more dramatic yeah. end so that, that, um, that went all the way to, to like some of the movies in the 80s too like that was I wonder what how that progressed I wonder like what what was the turning point that made 
that not happen because uh, you know even with like something like uh karate kid it ends you know at that tournament uh with the close-up of i think uh pat Morita's face you know yeah and like rocky and stuff as well yeah. yeah i wonder if anybody's written about this or or has read anything about this please send it to me because i'd be very fascinated to read about like the way that movie endings have have evolved over the years but uh, hey ben, it, I, I don't want to interrupt you for too long but i just want to you, you, you triggered something i want to mention real quick yes uh which is that uh difference between 42nd street and to be not to be the thing i find really interesting if you watch this decade of film is that a lot of those great depression comedies uh, lean very heavily on the audience living in the Great Depression and knowing very well what that what the characters are going through at that time, which is why in King Kong the lead character doesn't even hesitate to get on a boat to get, because, it, because, it, because, it, because it means a job, even if it means going on a boat with a bunch of random people off right. on a voyage. Uh, whereas by the time you get to be or not to be, which is like one of the best comedies ever made, uh, you have literally the, the, the backdrop of World War II where suddenly the, the uh, you have you, you have to be more plot driven because you literally have the world at stake, whereas all these early comedies are designed for people who want to be distracted, starring characters who are trying to survive the same plights they are without the movie actually calling attention to it. So I think there's like it's interesting to see the evolution of comedies go from uh, being so light and fluffy because they're about characters as desperate as the audience to being about characters who are literally trying to save the world because the audience felt the same way but during World War II. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I had not considered that. Um, I, I guess moving on really quick, I'll just sort of burn through the rest of these. I, I watched Little Women, which I'd never seen before, and the version I watched, there's been a ton of film versions of this uh, and adaptations of... Uh, and the, and there's this? a new one in the works, right? Yeah, Louisa May Alcott wrote the book, and um, I think uh, Greta Gerwig is directing a new version with uh, Shersha Ronan later this year. Um, the version that I watched was from 1933, and it starred Katherine Hepburn. And I would say Katherine Hepburn's performance is very good in this movie. It's directed by George Cukor, who directed a lot of movies that I've been watching over the past few months and, and really enjoyed, like The Philadelphia Story, and I think he directed Gaslight as well. Um, but this movie is not great, and I, I don't think it's the story that's not good. I just think it's the actual version of this film that is, uh, I found it to be lacking a little bit. Like, some of the editing choices are really bizarre. The movie sort of jumps around in time without telling you uh, how long has elapsed between moments? It just sort of like fades almost in like a boyhood uh, way, but not, um, <laughs> it, it doesn't have, it's not interested in time in the way that boyhood is. Uh, so it just sort of feels a little bit more jarring, but I'm definitely looking forward to watching either other versions of this. I know there's one in the 90s that my wife grew up watching, yeah. um, and I, I want to see the new one as well uh, later that later this year. I think the uh, Greta Gerwig one is supposed to come out around Christmas. But um, HT, I know, is a fan of this book. Which is the best film adaptation? Well, I've actually only seen one oh. film adaptation, and that's the 90s one with Winona Ryder and Christian Bale. Um, but yeah, I, the book is one of my favorite books of all time, and as a kid, too. So um, it's a great story, and don't let the uh, this initial version that you've seen put you off from watching other adaptations. Yeah, yeah, you can tell that the the bones of the story are, are really great and you know definitely worth watching. And it seems like there's almost a great version of this movie within this version of the movie. It's just not quite there yet. There's some, some strange 
strange choices and stuff that that sort of threw me off a little bit, which I wasn't really expecting from this director since I, I liked a lot of the stuff that he did before. But yeah, I would say maybe skip the 1933 version unless you're a, a huge Catherine Hepburn fan. Uh, and then also I watched uh, a movie called The Asphalt Jungle, which came out in 1950. This is another film noir. I've been watching a lot of those lately. Uh, this is a heist movie directed by John Huston. And um, this one was very enjoyable. It, it's, it reminded me a little bit of like The Naked City mixed with Rafifi. And if either of those sound interesting to you, I, I feel like you'll get a lot out of this movie. It was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. And uh, it stars who? Sterling Hayden, uh, Louis Callern, uh, and Gene Hagen, who Gene Hagen plays um, Lena Lamont in Singing in the Rain. And I don't think I'd ever seen her in anything else. And she was very, very good in this. Um, so, yeah, it's another like, you know, it has all of the tropes of noir in terms of like the cinematography and the framing and the the style and the the ambiance of everything. Uh, and the heist elements are really enjoyable, too. So that's uh, the Asphalt Jungle. Again, this is another movie that just comes to an end. So be warned that that happens. Uh, so, yeah, that that's the only, um, I guess, word of warning I would give. And then... I saw Shazam, guys, uh, the new DC movie. Um, I did not like this movie. I'm so sorry. I know that I think Peter and HT both like it a lot. I, I'm i leaning more towards you. I, I enjoyed it, but I, I did not. It, I would probably give it like a 6 out of 10. Oh, man. Yeah, I think I would give it like a like a three out of 10 or something. Wow. I don't know. I was, I just, it, it just did not work for me on almost any level. I think, I think Zachary Levi is, is very enjoyable and good to watch. And any scene where he and Jack Dylan Grazer, who plays Freddie Freeman, the sort of superhero obsessed uh, best friend kid, uh, any scene where those two are sharing the screen together, I was entertained and I thought they had a really, really good chemistry and dynamic between the two of them. But the story, the villain, the uh, the interactions between almost every other character in the movie I, and the jokes. And Wait, the humor you, you, you didn't like the family stuff? I, th- I feel like the family stuff is the stuff I like the most, like that brought it, the heart. It felt like what I feel like it felt emblematic of what I consider to be the the movie's biggest problems which which is just that it feels so forced and so um like not genuine like i i, I see what I they're trying completely, to but... <laughs> i mean that you know there there are a, co- a couple of good sort of like fist pa- fist pumping moments uh involving the family and i i'm sure you know what i'm talking about um and i was sort of on board for what happens later in the movie in terms of that stuff but like all of the Oh, man, all of the interactions between the family, I was just uh, and the jokes. I think that's the biggest thing is like almost none of the humor landed for me in a way that this movie is desperate for for it to land. And I just it felt like more than any other DC movie, it felt like this is the one where they were really, really like, okay, let's try to do the Marvel thing. And then they're just not very good at it. So, uh, yeah, I I was I was very uh, disappointed with Shazam, although I guess if you know, in the hands of a different writer, uh, I would not be opposed to watching, you know, further adventures with this character. It's not like I, I despise the premise or or don't like the, the lead character or anything. I just don't think that this screenplay, much like Aquaman, but I'm not going to get into that, uh, works very well at all. So, uh, yeah, that's Shazam. It's coming out on April, what, April 5th. So very soon. H.T., I know you are a big fan of this movie. Do you want to defend it? 
Yeah, I mean, I agree. I disagree with uh, everything that Ben said because I think that the gen- the emotions were very genuine. And um, while it does kind of abide by a very uh, traditional and very uh, sort of yeah, like throwback type of storyline, especially with the villain who who Mark Strong kind of does try to, to to do his best with, is very flat. Um, I think that because of the performances and the chemistry with the, with the cast, it really works. And just because and just be with the the boundless joy that this film kind of brings to the story um, really makes what really makes uh, Shazam work. Well, I'm glad you found joy in it. And I think a lot of other people are going to find joy in it too. I just, uh, I did not, it did not spark joy in me. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's Shazam. And then finally I, I rewatched uh, two things, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, which is amazing and, uh, you know, works so well. Um, this was only my second time seeing it and it's just a phenomenal movie. We talked about it enough that I don't even have to really go into it beyond that. But uh, I also finished my rewatch of the entirety of Game of Thrones and I have all of the same problems with the pacing and the, the storytelling choices in season seven now as i did when that season first aired like whenever it was two years ago uh but that being said i am very hyped for the final season now and i'm i'm ready to dig into that and hope that they can sort of uh reclaim things in in a way and um get the bring the show back to uh the glory that it was in its earlier seasons guys i bought game of thrones sneakers Adidas came out with these ultra boost sneakers. I was at the mall about to see us. And yes, I don't, I don't like game of Thrones. I saw the sneakers. I like, I was like, Oh, these look cool. I'm going to try them on. I didn't realize until I started to try them on because it says game of Thrones in, in the soul of the sneakers. And I guess mine's inspired by like fire and something. I don't know. There's some kind of fire and blood, Peter. Yeah. So I bought the sneakers. um, The words of House Targaryen. It is. It has the the logo in the, uh, you know, in the flap there. The banner. It's the house banner. Yeah. Um, Featuring their sigil, Peter. All the the words you don't know, but we know. So I want want to ask you guys, am I a total poser? I was just going to say, yes, you are absolutely. How much of a poser do you feel like when you're wandering around with these shoes that you're for a property that you don't even like? It doesn't say Game of Thrones on the outside. It just looks cool. (laughs) This is this reminds me of I have a friend who he used to be part of this uh, T-shirt subscription thing. Or maybe it was maybe it was a loot box, a loot crate like subscription that he got for Christmas or something. And he would keep all the shirts that he got from there. So there were days when he would wear a Doctor <laughs> Who shirt, and he knows nothing about Doctor <sighs> Who, nothing. And I, I, I actually got mad, and I was like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "You, first of all, it's not like you're <laughs> like like hurting for shirts, and second of all, why are you wearing this shirt? You know nothing about it." Finally, it came around to bite him in the ass because he went to the to the liquor store one day, and the person who was working there loved Doctor Who. And tried to engage them about it, and he was forced to be like, "Oh, oh yeah, to- totally, yeah, for sure, man, yeah, uh huh." There's this uh, t-shirt place that Kitra likes buying t-shirts off of online, and they have these mystery grab bags where I think for like twenty bucks you get like six t-shirts or something. It's like the stuff that you're trying to get rid of, but for your size. So she's done that a couple times and gotten, you know, generally it's stuff that she likes because it's a lot of the properties they deal with or things she likes but she's gotten like firefly t-shirts and stuff that she hasn't watched and she'll wear those out in public and people will come up to her and be like fellow brown coat and she'll be like i, I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> so i i don't know so yeah i guess i, I i'm opposed also this also reminds me when i was a kid 
I didn't watch sports. I still don't watch sports. But as a kid, start those starter jackets were cool. So yeah, I, I got a uh, I got one of the the Dallas Cowboys starter jackets just because I like the colors of the Dallas Cowboys. And then all the kids at school made fun of me for being a poser. You know what, Peter? I, I, I'm going to give you a pass on this. I feel like uh, you just got to embrace it. If you love the look, you love the look. Uh, maybe maybe this will be the thing that pushes you into actually watching Game of Thrones. But uh, I don't know. I can always hope. I've watched Game of Thrones. I'll, I'll probably have to watch this final season. <laughs> Peter, you're the second person in my life who's bought these shoes. And the other person is the guy who watched Game of Thrones with, with us every week, but always has to pause the show and say, who's that again? Who's that again? Who's that again? So they made these shoes for people who collect shoes, uh, not people who like Game of Thrones. So you know what? You're off the hook. Well, it's also interesting, too. I, I got them, and then when I got home, there was an ad for the shoes on, my, on Amazon. So I clicked on the ad. And the shoes were already sold out and selling for three times as much by the wow. the period. I got. So I didn't even know I was buying a limited edition thing. But, wow. uh, yeah, I guess I'm a sneakerhead now. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, what were we talking about? HT, besides us, what have you been watching? Uh, in keeping with the horror theme, I saw One Cut of the Dead, which is a Japanese low-budget zombie film that uh, Jacob has been raving about since he saw it at was it Fantastic Fest. Yeah, not to confess last year. Now, a lot yeah. of people have been like, don't say the plot of this movie. Don't give I'm going to a- try not to. Okay. <laughs> this, Yeah, because this is a movie that really rewards you knowing nothing about it going in. Um, and I haven't been so uh, pleasantly just um, surprised and my expectations completely upended by a movie in a while. And this was such a fun movie to just be surprised at and watch and kind of experience. Um I don't know how to talk about it without like yeah getting into spoilers, but I'll just say that it appears at first to be a movie about a uh, a zombie a a crew shooting a zombie film when uh, real life zombies start attacking them. And there's a really interesting way that this is shot in that it feels like it's intentionally showing the wiring as a way of being like a satire of some sorts, but it is more than that. And I really enjoyed how it unfolds. Ha, I did it. Okay. Where, where, where can people watch this movie if they want to watch it? I know it appeared on Amazon Prime for like a few hours and then disappeared. Yeah. So yeah. I actually saw this at um, What the Fest, which is like a indie uh, horror festival in New York that was running only for like four days. Um, and that was the only time it was showing because uh, it doesn't have distribution yet in the States, either in theaters or online. So it's something that's kind of – lying in wait right now which is a little disappointing because this is a film that would um i feel like become a kind of cult hit if it were more widely distributed yeah it's worth noting that it is a massive box office hit in japan uh mm-hmm. it is like doing blockbuster numbers there so i don't know it surely can't replicate that here uh especially i don't know how they just tell it here but man there, there is an audience for this here they have to i find feel like right you would have to sell it. it by giving away the premise which i'm Having heard enough people on the spot that podcast talk about this movie, I, I feel like I've connected the dots. But um, HT, what what else have you been watching? Um, so I have also seen watched a separation, which is on Netflix, and this is the uh, Academy Award winning. Um, Iranian film yeah Iranian film from 2011 uh, which follows a couple uh, trying to get a divorce uh, when they kind of and they're like a middle class couple and they run into 
these legal troubles with another uh, lower class couple and it becomes this just sort of boiler pot of class tensions and divisions and uh, it's really it's a really great drama and it's really fascinating and this kind of delineation of what class divisions are in Iran and like in a way that's not just like completely tragic but in a way that's like very modern and uh very uh like sympathetic I guess empathetic now to to, like just modern times I guess I would say um it's it's very good and that is showing on Netflix right now I also watched a Mexican film called like Water for Chocolate, which is based off of the uh, novel by uh, Laura Esquivel. It's a magical realism story about a girl who is um, forbidden to marry because of a family tradition in which she, as the youngest daughter, must take care of her mother for the rest of her life. And um, because of this, she falls in love with this man who ends up marrying her sister. And um, she puts all of her passions into her food, which kind of culminate in these magical, supernatural um, instances in which people can sort of uh, experience what she is feeling by eating her food. And uh, it's a really great magical realism movie that um, came out in, I think, uh, 1992. And uh, it's very sensual and um, a really great food movie if you're looking for that because the food in this is just depicted in a way that's both um, delicious and uh, sort of like sensual eroticism that this story kind of um, invites. So uh, I recommend this film. It's on Hulu right now. And then I also watched season three of Queer Eye, which um, Brad has talked about a little bit with season two. Uh, Queer Eye season three takes the the Fab Five to Kansas City, Missouri. And um, it's just as good and just as heartwarming as before. Um, it's really interesting now that in season three, which I think is shot a little bit later than season one and two, they are more aware of just kind of the the impact that Queer Eye has made upon people so there's just more of like this awareness of everything they say and do is going to be memed or is going to be like copied and stuff and like for example tan france who's the fashion um guide for this for the group uh talks about doing the french tuck and he's like yes i know everyone is making fun of the french tuck so it's like it's kind of like this almost meta version of itself which i found really fascinating and um it's always fun to watch and kind of a a nice thing to to binge while you're either sick or something like I I might have been. Um, sorry for the croaky throat, guys. Uh, and I also rewatched uh, Kung Fu Hustle, which is on Netflix now. And that is Stephen Chow's martial arts comedy classic. Uh, this is a movie I watched a long time ago when I was a kid. I really enjoyed. Um, but the Kung Fu Hustle on Netflix actually shows it in the original uh, oh, is it Cantonese or Mandarin? Um, it shows in the original Chinese language. I'm sorry to say that I can't really say which one it is. Uh, Cantonese. That's what it is. Okay. The original Cantonese. Because um, the the version that I saw as a kid was dubbed in English, which I think kind of lent to its almost cartoonish uh, Looney Tunes style comedy. Um, and seeing it in Cantonese almost gives it like a darker tone and like brings out the elements that are a little bit more serious than I remember it being. And, um, but I, I enjoyed it all the same. It's so funny and so good. Um, and just like so over the top and stylized that, uh, Stephen Chow, um, it, it deserves its place. It's like Stephen Chow's, uh, widely accepted best movie. Although I have a soft spot for, uh, 
Shaolin soccer, which I think is just a little bit more ridiculous and has a more of a team building. A little bit more ridiculous. (laughs) Well, it does. I I mean, they're both equally ridiculous. Shaolin soccer has the the part, the big climax where you know they he kicks the ball and then it like it's so powerful that it make it blows the clothes off of everyone and. It's great. I love it. Yeah. Um, so Kung Fu Hustle, now streaming on Netflix. And uh, also on, I think it's on Netflix, uh, The Lives, also on Netflix, is The Lives of Others, which is the um, incredible uh, German film about uh, this Stasi officer in 1980s East Germany who is a really loyal um, sort of informant and spy and finds himself spying on this uh, playwright and his girlfriend and um, starts kind of becoming obsessed and falling in love with them and uh, his loyalties end up shifting throughout and it's this incredible spy thriller that re- that plays more like an intimate character drama and in that way it becomes um, just like really taut and really um, uh, gripping to watch so uh, that's all I have been watching this past week HT, how do you feel with the lives of others beating Pan's Labyrinth for best foreign language film at the Oscars that year? Uh, <laughs> mm, I mean, they're both great films. Pan's Labyrinth is definitely my personal favorite, and I would have liked it to see it win. But I'm glad that Guillermo del Toro got his, his Oscar for The Shape of Water, oh, even man. though Pan's Labyrinth is still my favorite of his films. People were so mad that year. <laughs> Pan's I Labyrinth mean, is a better film. It's still a good film. And uh, so I'm. It's good that people were aware of it, at least. <laughs> okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, this week, I learned how to cook a steak like Kiefer Sutherland. I discovered uh, through YouTube. For some reason, YouTube recommended a video. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland apparently has a YouTube channel, which uh, I'm not sure like who records these videos, if it's his wife, if it's his uh, daughter or son, but he does these videos like every few months of like him cooking something. And it's like a 10 minute cooking video. And one of them was how to cook, uh, the perfect steak from Keith or Sutherland. So I watched that video and I cooked the steak and it was, it was pretty good. Uh, I like the way I cook it better. It wasn't as life changing as learning how to cook scrambled eggs like Gordon Ramsay that, uh, we talked about that in the past on the podcast. Um, but I will put the link to this in the show notes in case you want to see how to cook a steak like kefir. Um, and, uh, and you can do that in under 24 minutes. So, uh, we, I also discovered something, a, a new snack that I wanted to recommend. Uh, Dang, this company called Dang makes these, uh, these lightly salted toasted coconut chips and they come in like different sized bags. Um, instead of like, you know, normal chips, these are, are, are considerably better for you there. It's about 180 calories per serving, uh, four or five grams of carbs, uh, two grams of protein. Uh, if you like the taste of coconut and salt, that's basically what they taste like. And, uh, I will put a link to those in the show notes as well. But, uh, Brad, you've been eating, a lot more interesting things than me. You've been, uh, you took one for the team and tried out the Peeps cereal. <laughs> yeah, and I definitely took one for the team here because Peeps cereal is awful. Uh, I now I should say I'm not the biggest fan of Peeps to begin with because I feel like they are way too sugary and the granules of the sugar just make it feel like I'm eating a marshmallow with sand in it. Um, so because I, I do enjoy marshmallows in general and I like 
the kind of like chocolate covered marshmallow stuff that gets released around like Valentine's Day and Easter and Christmas, like the like the Russell Stover uh, marshmallow um, candies and stuff like that. But uh, not the biggest fan of Peeps, but I was intrigued enough because this is you know cereal is my jam um, that I just wanted to give it a shot. But it's just it's not good. It is it's way too much artificial marshmallow flavor for the cereal, um, which isn't really a wait. Good... So do, are there marshmallows in the cereal? Yeah, there are real marshmallows in the cereal, like tiny, tiny white marshmallows. And then the cereal itself, it, it looks like basically pastel Fruit Loops, uh, pink, yellow, and blue. And there, are, the flavor of the cereal itself has this artificial marshmallow flavor to it. And it's just really off-putting. And the cereal itself does not taste good. And it's just... Wait, it's way too much marshmallow. Uh, like, just just stick with Lucky Charms if marshmallows and cereal is your jam. Because this this peep cereal was not cutting it for me at all. It's it's one of my the my least favorite new cereals that I've tried. It was not good. <laughs> and uh, you've also been eating some interesting flavored peeps. I yeah, did. I have a question before you finish yeah. this. Yeah. When you have cereal, when you buy cereal for like these experiments, um, what do you do if you don't like them? Do you just like not are they like a whole carton or do you just kind of throw them away or something? Yeah, it's, so it's, it's usually a full box. Yeah, I try to give the cereals that I don't like to my friends who have kids because kids usually don't give a crap what kind of cereal they eat. Um, so sometimes I give it away, but sometimes it's cereal that like they, like a kid won't really enjoy, like if it's a different kind of like Cheerios or something like that. And so sometimes I, I end up just, just throwing it away because it's going to go to waste otherwise. Um, I So it's just, yeah, it, it's it's a risk that I, I end up taking. So I'm basically spending like $2.50 or whatever on a single bowl of cereal that I didn't enjoy. <laughs> but, you know, that's just the life of liking to try new cereals, I guess. Yeah. And that, that's not a huge investment. To be honest. Yeah, it's not it's not too bad. Um and and honestly like it's it's rare that there's a cereal that I really dislike, so it it, it usually ends up working out because I I'm not it's not often that I buy a, a whole box of cereal and then I'm like nope, done with that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how bad Peeps cereal is. Um but yeah, yeah so I, even though I don't like Peeps normally, I was very intrigued by two um, new flavors that I saw uh, recently. Because I just wanted to know how they captured the flavor in the form of a marshmallow peep. And so one of them was pancakes and syrup. And the other one is root beer float. And they are okay. <laughs> um, the flavor, uh, like, it doesn't come from the marshmallow itself. The in inner marshmallow is pretty much just the same as any other marshmallow. They didn't do anything to, to change the flavor of, the of that. Instead, it's it's basically just the coating of the peep that has the flavor, and so it's it's still the granular sugar covering, which you know it's it, I don't really like, but the flavor itself is it's honestly kind of weak. the The smell of the the flavors is actually stronger than the flavor itself. Otherwise, it just tastes like vaguely flavored sugar on a marshmallow, which basically describes any peep you're gonna have. Um, but yeah, so they were, you know, it, it was interesting. I'm, I'm not upset that I tried them just cause you know, my curiosity got the better of me, but they were not necessarily, uh, in, enjoyable. Hmm. And, uh, you also tried some beer cheese flavored potato chips. Yeah. So Lay's has three new flavors that they just recently put out. Um, and cause they, they've been doing a lot of crazy, uh, flavors lately. So, but this is part of their new, um, I guess it's called, it's called turn like taste of America, turn up the flavor, like uh thing. 
And so they released Electric Lime Sea Salt as a wavy Lay's potato chips, uh, Flamin' Hot Dill Pickle and as regular Lay's, and then Kettle Cooked Classic Beer Cheese. Um, and I have you guys had, had beer cheese before? No. No. It's, it's it's actually really good for for like, as Wait, like what what is, even is beer cheese? Beer, I mean beer cheese is it's it's a it's a dipping sauce where that is made by mixing cheese with with a little bit of beer. So it's just um, like everything fermented. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um it's it's very good actually. I've I've been to places where you can get it as an appetizer and they bring like chips or or stuff to dip in it. I've also been to places where they put it on burgers as uh, as a cheese sauce. Mm-hmm. And it's it's actually really good. So I like beer cheese um, just in, in general. And so I was curious as to how these were, and they're they're pretty good. The, the the cheese flavor is there. It does have the slight beer taste that beer cheese does. And the fact that they're kettle cooked actually, I actually uh, I like more than if they were probably just the regular lays because since the kettle cooked chips are more crunchy. So um, I, I'm not interested in the other two because I'm not a lime salt person, and I could care less about anything that's flavored like a pickle. Um, so these are the only ones of those Lay's chips that I'll I'll try. Sorry to anybody who wants me to try those other chips, but uh, that's just not my thing. Okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. Ben, you played a new game for the first time this weekend. Yeah, well, it's not it's new to me. It's called pickleball. Has anybody here ever played pickleball before? I literally I've just said I hate all things pickle, Ben. uh yeah so pickleball i had never heard of it either and a friend of mine and his girlfriend introduced me and my wife to it uh this past weekend and it's basically a it's sort of like tennis but on a smaller court it's almost like an in-between version of tennis and ping pong so it's like the same basic premise where you're using a paddle to hit a ball across a net at, at the other players uh and you're on a court that has slightly different rules and I don't want to like get into the weeds on what the differences are in the rules and stuff. But I guess suffice it to say that this game, as far as I understood, it was basically like uh, a lot of old people play this game. Like we played on Saturday morning and at like nine o'clock and there were tons of like older people out at the courts where we were. And there are like specific courts that you have to play them on. You can't just like, you know, go to a tennis court and play. You have to play like on a specific pickleball court. But, uh, I, you know, thinking that this was a game for old people, I underestimated how much actual physical uh, like physicality would be necessary to play this game. Uh, I really like playing tennis and this is, you know, it, it's a slower paced game than tennis, but it's also uh, and it doesn't require as much power, but it requires a lot of movement. And uh, <laughs> like I, basically, I've been sore. I played on Saturday morning and I've been sore ever since today. Today's the first day that I woke up and wasn't like in pain. And I'm I consider myself like in relatively decent shape. So, um, but yeah, ben, this, this is supposed to be for old people who are immobile. No, it's not that they're not immobile. It's just for old people. And and I guess it's taught me a lesson about old people who, <laughs> even though they get up really, really early there, it's for old people who like to stay active and like keep moving because this this game uh, requires you to bend and twist at in ways that my body has not in a long, long time. <laughs> so uh, it's a great game for anybody, not just for older people. I would recommend if you guys are interested in, you know, if you like playing tennis, for example, um, if you have a pickleball court near you, maybe look it up on YouTube. There's there's a couple different like how to play kinds of videos that that uh, we watched before we went out just to make sure we had the basics of it down. And um, 
it, it's a lot of fun once you're actually out there like in practice doing it it's uh I, I would i am very much looking forward to playing again so it's called pickleball and uh one of the videos said that it was like the fastest growing sport in america and i'm like well yeah if if it's going from you know zero to two people are suddenly playing it sure it's going to be you know most sports in america are like relatively well established but uh apparently it's been going since like the 1960s and there's like leagues all around and stuff so uh it's not an olympic sport yet but um but it, it's not, i guess there's a lot of people out there who know what pickleball is i just was not one of them i thought frisbee golf was the fastest growing sport i'm sure it is i'm sure every every one of those <laughs> sports can claim that at some point but and i have no idea how you would even measure that anyway but uh but yeah pickleball is a lot of fun by the way I, I think when you have something like frisbee golf and y- you basically combine two sports into one that shouldn't be a sport because it's, <laughs> it's already two uh, separate sports but okay anyways jacob you've been playing some board games uh, yeah, I played I played a, f- a few board games, some of which I've mentioned on the show before and will mention again. Uh, but two ones I have not talked about that I think are worth mentioning. The first one is The Estates, which is a game of everybody playing crooked real estate developers. And the gist is that you're trying to build three rows of buildings in an area that's only been zoned for two rows. So whatever two rows get finished first get completed and everyone gets paid out. And whatever third or the third row, unfinished, uh, gets demolished along with all the everything you've invested in it. So it's an extremely cutthroat game of auctioning off whatever the next building is going to be and trying to outbid each other and being ruthless and <laughs> trying to get your, your buildings down in the right place at the right time and trying to end the game strategically at a point where you succeed and everybody else fails. And it is a vicious game. I mean, if I know people always talk about how, you know, in some ways a game as boring as Monopoly is a great uh, indica- indication of capitalism because the game we go around and around and around there's only one winner and everybody else loses whereas the estates I think captures that sort of cutthroat idea but with an actually good game design where everybody is just destroying each other to try to be on top and if you have the right group of people who who are really who have thick enough skin to like not take it personally but still get into it and like really get invested in the gameplay um, we were getting so mad at each other in all the fun ways, like yelling and screaming and negotiating and bargaining. And as the estates, it is very fun. Uh, and But like I said, also very mean and not, not intended for passive or innocent players, but people who are willing to have a game where everybody's talking and negotiating and really getting into it. Have you ever been uh, to a game night where like it's a cutthroat game and you could tell by, you know, what is being said and what is not being said that at least one of the couples there is going home and someone's sleeping on the couch? Oh, yeah, I, I've been that couple. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a game that uh, I played. I haven't played in a couple of years. Oh, goodness. I cannot remember her life knew what it's called. A City of Horror. It is a uh, zombie survival game. Where every player plays not one character, but a group of characters in the zombie apocalypse. And there's only so many safe spaces on the board. And the safe spaces and supplies dwindle each uh, round. And the goal of the game is to keep your group alive as long as possible at the expense of other players. That means either stealing their supplies, you know, moving moving into spaces after they leave for them. And in some cases, like kicking them off towers into crowds of zombies. Like there's a, there's a game we played where one character was like playing like the town butcher drop kicked a 12 year old girl at least a character is 12 year old girl off a water tower into a crowd of zombies so he can keep his team alive <laughs> and i have i love this game because it's so vicious but my wife was oh, at the time girlfriend was so mad at me like she wouldn't speak to me for a day uh, i have friends who refuse to play it i have people who who like 
just won't, won't talk about that night because that game left so many bad, rotten feelings in my gaming group. But I think it's one of the best games I've ever played. <laughs> those those are great stories to talk about in retrospect, but not not great at the mo- in the moment of time. Oh yeah, uh, the other game I played. Speaking of backstabbing, is a game called HMS Dolores, which is based uh, on a very interesting historical footnote of when. Uh, ships would shipwreck on shorelines uh, near populated areas. Uh, the local criminal element would come out and raid the the, 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 the beached ship and split up all the goods that were meant to be delivered and, and hightail out of there before the sun ra- rises and the authorities find out. So it's a basic card game that uses the Prisoner's Dilemma game concept, which if you're familiar with that, the basic idea is crystallized here into a card game where you draw four cards, lay them on in front of two players, and both players on the count of three can either both raise their hands in the handshake, and if they do, they split the goods evenly. If if one player raises a fist and the other one does a handshake, the player who raised a fist gets all four cards and the handshake gets nothing. If both players raise a fist at the same time, all cards get discarded. And there's other rules, like you, you can do a thumbs up to guarantee you're getting yourself one card, no matter one other person plays. But the basic gist is trying to read the, the other player at the table, trying to talk into them, trying to figure out what cards they want and if you can make a deal beforehand like sometimes maybe you don't want the cards in front of you because they won't go well with what you have so you say okay let's make sure neither of us get these or let's make sure i get one of these you get everything else and it's, it's just a um game's all about you know looking into the face of the person next to you and trying to decide if you trust them or not it plays in 20 minutes it's a very small card game it's a lot of fun Okay, cool. Um, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashHome.com. You can find this podcast, Slash Home Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashHome.com. And head on over to our iTunes page. Write us a positive review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. Uh, yes, Jacob? Uh, I have in my hands uh, the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and refinery by Louis A. Safian, and I've opened it to a chapter that we have yet to see on Slash Film Daily. What, what is the chapter? I'm afraid to the ask. Chap- the chapter is Playgirls. <laughs> oh, no. Is, is this going to affect our PG rating on iTunes? Let's find out what Mr. Wait, Safian has planned for us. A PG rating on iTunes? I don't know. I'm, just, I'm making... <laughs> I, I, I think there is an explicit uh, rating or something. I'm pretty sure we say the F word a decent amount. Shh. <laughs> All right. Well, since Brad, I think Brad's first up. <clears throat> Brad, he can give you a bow by bow account of his affairs. Y- yep. Oh, <laughs> uh, Chris, he has a heart like the army. Open to all men between 18 and 45. Oh my god. What a... <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, Peter, the way he flips his hips and t- tosses his torso, he has to be sinned to be appreciated. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, ben, he's a public relations guy. His biggest job is keeping his relations from becoming public. Whoa. <laughs> Scandalous. Um, I'm trying to find one for HG that isn't, like, really horrible. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry, HG, but you've been on more laps than a napkin. 
Oh my god. <laughs> oh lord. Wow. <laughs> this got real risque. <laughs> Some someone so, alerts our, our uh, HR department. I'm so sorry. This, this was a mistake. <laughs> Saw the mistake. Who would have thought this book would have bad things in it? <laughs> this is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming. And his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.